It is the start for a Tuesday morning, Monday Junior, some around here call it. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb joining you this morning. Thank you for joining us. Brett McGarry returns tomorrow. Uh, Loren, let's just jump into things today because once again, lots of things on the radar, things to talk about from yesterday, things to talk about that we'll be discussing today, but we're anticipating news from Winnipeg Police Service this morning around nine o'clock. So this is part of something they do every single year. They release an annual report on their statistics, which means everything they've gathered gathered from how many calls they take to how they respond to crime stats, you know, violent crimes and up or down property crime. How's it trending? And they're going to share those stats at nine. Then they're going to have a briefing later and then the chief will be available and we'll get him on our sh- our shows, one of our shows uh, at some point in the day. But, I, you know, I think it's safe to presume that we won't see a lot of arrows pointing down in any sort of report. Uh, We know that last summer when they were kind of giving us a snapshot of how things were looking after some of those Canada Day stabbings, that a lot of columns were trending up. So violent crime was one of them. There was more uh, crimes with knives that was up. We've heard guns have now become a big issue. Carjackings, there's all sorts of categories that they're seeing an increase in. And and at the halfway point last year, the only thing that we really saw a decrease in, if I recall correctly, was property crime. But that also had an asterisk beside it because that was because we had seen a reduction in liquor store thefts. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we've seen a reduction um, in other types of property crime. And so that, you know, that's when it's compared to such a high amount a few years ago. That's why it might look like it trends down. So we'll have those numbers at nine. But I do want to ask people what they're thinking and feeling out there because sometimes it feels like we we focus on crime and it's all this bad stuff. Is there Are there any good news mm. stories out there and what might they be? Is it just how we respond, how we solve, how who we catch, or even just, you know, are, are you helping a neighbor out with some of their circumstances they've had or neighbor, neighborhood watch might be a good thing to come out of it. And if I can put good in that category. There's no good thing about crime, but have we figured out a way to help each other out so we can get these numbers going down? I'm going to suspect the answer is a lot of no Mm -hmm. uh, to those things, Loren, but I like your positivity. I like the way you're approaching this. We know that last year was a record year for homicide, so that there's no that's not a mystery. We know those numbers uh, and where that number is going to to sit for 2022. But you mentioned property c- crime, and what sticks in my craw? Yeah, it's 6:09, and I'm already got something in my craw. But <laughs> let's the, not pretend something's not in that craw in and around 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it starts early, <laughs> and, whether it's weather or traffic or whatever. Yeah, it's early and often. Let's yeah. put it that way. But. You know, the idea that uh, Winnipeg Police Service, for a variety of reasons, right at the top of that list is resources and the the, the seriousness of crime uh, overall in our city. The fact that the one time you might need a police officer is when your home's been broken into or you've had property theft, uh, whether it be on your own property or maybe when you're somewhere else in the city and someone breaks in to your vehicle and you just go online and you file a report and they give you a number and just this whole sense of resignation towards the idea that, yeah, that's just a fact of life. Because I'm old enough to remember when your home was broken into. The sirens come whistling down. They would come yeah. really quickly. Two officers would come to your house. They'd at least give you the impression that they were going to try and do something to try and recover your property. And if they didn't do that, they would at least sort of, you know, uh, figuratively put their arm around you and go, 
you know, sorry that you're dealing with this. Here's my card. Here's your, here's your reference number, your incident number. And uh, if you need anything, give us a call. You don't even get that anymore. And I think that that is one thing that I wish was different well, when I, it comes, when it comes to our interaction with police, our interaction, our ability to uh, reach out for answers and maybe even just a, sometimes a soft landing spot when you've been a victim of crime. I don't know if it maybe depends on what happened, how often it happens. We also know there are people who run businesses that have had response from police, but there's nothing that can be done to stop or it feels like there's nothing to be done to stop it. And, you know, five years ago, we might have said, text us if you've been a victim of crime and not had that many responses, because in theory, there shouldn't be too many of us who deal with this. I know that's not the case. So if you have a story you'd like to tell, let us know, 780-6868. Again, that report's coming out at 9. At 637, we're going to talk about no place to go and the right to go. And I'm talking go and pee. Like, if you have to go to the washroom at any point, what's your access to a public washroom in, in your neighborhood? And then more than that, think about those who might live on the streets or be in and around the downtown or do some couch surfing. We're going to talk about a public washroom on Main Street that wants to go 24-7. Sorry, the city would like it to go 24-7. And they're saying, great idea. But. Who's working overnight? So we'll delve into the topic of public washrooms. It, it's, it's a downtown issue in this story, but it's an issue for many. COVID taught all of us that we need more places to go because so many places were closed in and around COVID. And then you suddenly realize, so I'm just going to pull over here? Like, that and it's was not, the reality for many. And it's not just a, a an issue for homeless people. It's an issue for business. It's not just an issue in downtown Winnipeg. It's an issue all over North America in my travels. And if you travel at all and you go to any fast food restaurants, if you go to uh, convenience stores attached to gas stations, it's very seldom now that you can go into a washroom in any of those establishments without either getting a code Mm -hmm. from someone at the front counter or a key. Or having to buy a coffee. Or having to buy something (laughs) or getting buzzed in to a washroom. It's a huge concern. It's a huge issue for business owners and just overall accessing when you've got to go. The idea of not buying something is sort of off the table. If you want to use that that washroom within a restaurant or convenience store, uh, gas station center, the, uh, the idea of using it without bu- purchasing something is sort of off the table. So let us know about your experiences. And maybe you've been to countries where they are doing this right. I had said I was in London last year and they have pay systems, pay washrooms, and you have to pay a pound, I think it was, to get in. But then they were staffed and really clean. Now, that won't help everyone because you might not have the cash or the money. But it had me wondering, do they use that money to then provide services free of charge elsewhere? Or does that make sense to have some sort of system where there's a public washroom with a security guard? You know, like if you're worried about your safety. You had a tick yesterday, McNabb. Yes. And I spent maybe like I was I watched my kids track and field competition, but I was like walking from a cement parking lot to a cement stadium and then we spent maybe four and a half seconds outside quickly watering one of the plants because it started to rain as I was out there and pulled the tick off me. Like, where did that come from? The dog, I guess. But where did he get it? They're really, really Ugh. bad. So uh, just be mindful of the ticks out there. It's Mackling and McNabb. McGarry uh, is off today. He'll be back tomorrow. Cam Poitras, Sarah McCarthy, Jeff Forche are here. And we're talking 
Throughout the day, we're talking about stay interviews, the idea of businesses getting out ahead of people leaving because that's a huge problem, Uh, not only hiring, but retaining quality talent uh, in a variety of businesses. Maybe all businesses right now is a challenge. And so this is one of the tactics that businesses are using. I think they probably should have been doing this a long time ago, but that's a side conversation. We want to talk about job interviews. Uh, One of my boys had their very first job interview yesterday. Mm -hmm. Sounded like it went fairly well. We'll see how things went, but we had some mock interviews on on our way to the appointment yesterday and to the interview and some of the questions he sort of looked at me, why are you asking me that? Well, let's talk about some of the job interviews you've had, maybe the worst questions you've been asked, your worst answers, or maybe your best answers. Sarah McCarthy, let's start with you. For sure. So this one was for like a contract job. It was a safety role in the pulp industry. I'm not going to say the name of the company or where or anything. I did have to get drug tested because it was for safety, of course. But I was just surprised with how quick the actual interview was. They basically asked me, are you a safe person? Do you take risks? And I said, I'm safe. Like, in what way? What do you mean? I'm not a risk taker, I guess. And then they're like, perfect. See you next week. (laughs) As long as your drug test is good, you're good. So, but I went back the next summer. It was good job overall. I was just shocked at how fast that went. Steel toes every single day. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Steel toes. What about you, you, Forts? Uh, My fastest interview, I think, was like five minutes, if that. It was, uh, it was like, what is that, about a year ago? And uh, it was over FaceTime. And they're like, the questions were basically exactly the same. Like, so casual. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, like what are your, how are you available? Like, what are your times? Uh, are you safe? And uh, are you okay with the background check? I got a background check. Yeah. And just they're like, you want the job? And I was like, sure. <laughs> so it was, I was in and out like five minutes and I got the job. Yay. Do you think that sometimes that's because, you know, you go into an interview stressed, like what mm-hmm. are they going to ask? And you've prepped all these possibilities and you don't want to get caught out. And then sometimes I think they're just going off a gut. I like your face, you yeah. know, like, yeah. you know, like, I feel like kind, I know you. Or, I feel like I know you. look you. like a hard worker. And I, I dressed up for this and everything. Like it was over <laughs> the camera and like, so I'm all dressed up. And it happened for like five minutes and I got undressed <laughs> afterwards. And I was like, well, what was, what was the point of that? Yeah. Did you have pants on at least for it, Jay? Of course. Okay. Mm. What about you? Uh, are you going to tell the one I think you are or not? Uh, yeah. I mean, this was, this was, uh, I was looking for a job. It was around Christmas time and it was at, uh, it was actually at, a, I'll say future shop. It's not around anymore, but, um, and I walked in there and I was looking for a job and I, and I had been working as like a guy behind the scenes and, you know, moving boxes and stuff like that. And I wanted to get something a little bit you know, more out on the floor and, and that sort of situation. So anyways, I applied I applied, and I got called in for an interview and I, I wore, you know, nice dress pants. I, I had a button-up shirt. I, I, I wore an, uh, uh, a nice jacket when I went into for the interview. And I sit down with this, with this, with this lady and she looks at me with, with, with and she looks at me like, like all confused. And I, you know, we start conducting the interview and then two seconds in she's like well you really obviously don't care about this about this position you didn't even show up in a suit and tie <laughs> and i was like uh wow i you know i i wore i wore like a button-up i just thought it you know this being future shop it wasn't as uh you know this wasn't like a uh like 
like a dress up business. I don't want to be a lawyer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so anyway, so then the interview went up for about another 10 minutes. And the whole time I was like, obviously giving off body language. This is obviously over. This is not happening. Yeah. But I, I, I you know, and I, I've since then I've made sure that I wear a tie. I don't care what kind of interview it is because I was sort of embarrassed. Um, but like looking back on it, I, I thought it was a little a little silly. I mean, it, it's it's future shop. I don't need to be wearing a suit and tie for that gig. I had an interview with that exact same company probably yeah. 15 years beforehand, and that was the exact same question I got. <laughs> really? I, really? Yes, because really? I wore a dress shirt with a really nice sweater and, and and slacks. Yeah. Right? Going in, I thought I looked pretty smart. I was wearing my dress, I wore said, dress shoes, dress shoes I look, too. I look good, but I didn't have a suit on, <laughs> and that was their expectation. What about you, McNabb? Actually, let me ask you this question, because... Uh, at, the, uh, at, 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 at the restaurant where I was a manager for years at Earl's, we had this goofy question. If you were an animal, what animal would you be? <laughs> and I, I, I put my own spin on it one time and I said, what makes you tick? Loren, what makes you tick? And my boss was sitting two tables down. And as soon as I asked the question, I could see him put his head. Like, what are you doing? Goes, what kind of question is that, Macklin? Because what makes you Because in some tick? jobs, it's hard to figure out. Like in a serving position, you're looking for a lot of things. But is that coming across in an interview? You need to see some things in action. I'll just say quickly, in university, I applied for a job only because it paid really well. It was helping French kids learn English. And, of course, the interview was in French. And somehow I got the job. And then sweated every Thursday when I had to go to this school and fake my way through English lessons because I basically just, I played Backstreet Boys for that class a lot. I've been like, let's listen to this song. Bonjour. You learn English this way. Comment ça va? Oui. Uh-huh. Oui. One of our uh, listeners. Oui. Oui. One of, our, one of our listeners says, my wife has a stay interview with me once a month. <laughs> And we're, we are inviting your interview, job interview stories. Uh, stay interviews have become a thing. We've had a conversation amongst ourselves uh, about our, our best and worst interviews, some of our best and worst interview questions and answers. 204-780-6868. If you'd like to go see the Blue Bombers and Rough Riders Friday night, we've got tickets up for grabs for the best story on your job interview experiences. But at 7.09, we want to start this hour. With mental health, I think we all know and understand that when we go for a walk, a a bike ride, hit the gym, it's not only good for our physical health, but it's good for our mind, good for our soul. We get it. (laughs) But are you doing it? That's the question, because it's hard to fit exercise in your day. Today, the folks at TELUS Health have a new survey showing only 13% of the people they spoke to on the job exercise regularly. Paula Allen is Global Leader and Senior Vice President, Research and Client Insights at TELUS Health. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. So we should exercise more, but what's stopping us? What were some of the things that you heard? There are a number of things. Um, One of the things is basically just time. Uh, But we also found that people who are paradoxically, people who uh, have some kind of compromise with their mental health, also have more challenges in exercising. It's harder to get the energy up. It's harder to move forward with your intention. Uh, But we do know that it makes a big difference. So it's a bit of a paradox here, but it's definitely part of our reality. 
So uh, sometimes, you know, they talk about courage and the way to have the courage to do something is to do said something. It's, it's sort of backwards, right? Uh, uh, to uh, do skydiving, to get the courage to do it, you sort of have to jump out of that plane with the parachute on your back. Is it similar with regard to exercise? And if not, what is the challenge? What is getting in, in the way? Well, you hit the nail right on the head. It's important for our total well-being to have movement. And we are in a society right now where it's very easy to be very sedentary in most people's lives. Uh, We also found parents were twice as likely to report not exercising as non-parents, which speaks to the time factor. But if you look at it as something essential for your health, if you build it into your day, you schedule it, and you, you, you don't even think about whether you should or not. Just like you brush your hair and you brush your teeth and you take a shower and you do certain things in order to take care of your well-being, exercise needs to be looked at in exactly the same way. So one-third, 33% of people surveyed said sleep would help. 20% said access to a nutritious foods, affordable foods would make a difference in their physical health. People talked about convenient and safe places to exercise. And I think we could understand all those reasons, Paula. I'm wondering if you're an employer listening now, what's an employer supposed to do to help with this? Because for many, it might be like, I go to work, I go home, I help my kids, I go to bed, repeat. And what's an employer supposed to take away from this? You know, employers have a lot more influence than sometimes they give themselves credit for. Uh, When you have a culture that kind of repeats things, you're communicating on a regular basis, you're encouraging people to move forward, you have services that help them get over the blocks, it does make a difference. So we know that there are some employers who actually really put a lot of effort into helping people get that base understanding around how to how to support their own well-being. So through communication, through challenges and, you know, different ways that people can get motivated to move and volunteer work that includes uh, a lot of physical, physical, uh, physical expenditure. All of those things do make a difference. The most important thing is that you need to have something that puts it in your mind as important and just a natural way of living. And then the first step is a mechanism to do it. So a coach, a challenge, communication, all of those things that employers really do quite well are very helpful in helping people move forward with their well-being, including exercise. Paula Allen, Global Leader and SVP Research and Client Insights at TELUS Health. Paula, we always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you for your time this morning. Always my pleasure. This ties back in also, I think, Loren, to these stay interviews because employers know that they have to keep their employees happy and productive and a part of the program, so to speak. And so... Like, do you have gym, gym memberships? You, you have to do everything you can or, for your employees to be happy, productive, and and and, and working hard, and, and that, that work-life balance. Yeah, I, I genuinely wonder how many people have those options or a discount for a gym, or they might... Again, you still need the time. Or maybe we all learned, you know, when many people were working from home, you would do your meetings and walk or you would you would i, I did that a ton of times and how now many, how many I'm people sitting, took a, a, an I'm hour in the middle of their day at my desk or in the car and that's fine but my exercise is, is changed as a result yep breakfast with the bombers brought to you by cooperators investing in your future 
together. Friday night, the Blue Bombers return to the field for their second and final preseason game versus Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Saturday afternoon, the Blue Bombers played in Edmonton and came home with a 25-23 win versus the Elks. The win, not really a big deal, but Loren, what I found most fascinating is the amount of attention the quarterback position is getting post-game. You usually don't hear much about them, uh, you know, in those preseason games. But when you're starting quarterback as the reigning league's most outstanding player, you would also add what else is there to discuss? Well, if you're Derek, Dalek, Taylor, Dalek, Derek Taylor, Derek, Derek Taylor, Taylor, such a hard name. It's how much Zach Caleros played on Saturday. Zach Caleros played nothing last season. None. Zip, zero, zilch, nada. So to see him get a quarter and... Uh, I guess about five minutes and then to see Drew Brown with the rest of the starting offense for the rest for basically the rest of the first half. I was surprised because I thought, oh, you know, just let these guys all take a break. I my hypothesis is it comes down to how many bodies you actually had Um, there. I mean, they only brought 60 something players. So if you were just going to eliminate 24 of them off the top, that's that's less than a regular roster. Right. So I guess I guess, uh, you know, you felt you had to get them sharp. Um, but yeah, I was, I was surprised because, you know, the thing that the difference that Bombers have that no other team in the CFL has is a super elite quarterback in Zach Kolaris. And um, what if something freakish happens here? I always, I always worry about that a little bit just because of the profound effect it would have. So uh, I, I was, but I feel like they're all pretty happy for the experience they got. Brendan O'Leary Orange saw a ton of targets. Kenny Lawler showed his dominance over, Edmonton's first team defensive backs. Johnny Augustine got a little taste of it. Uh, you know, the offensive line knows it has to clean up some stuff in the run game. So I think it's all, you know, probably for, I'm just going to say it's for the best because it was it was Coach O'Shea's decision and, and he knows better what uh, what his team needs in that circumstance. But I was certainly surprised. So those first two quarterback positions are locked in with Caleros and Drew Brown at number two. The open position is for the third QB or a short yardage pivot. First and 10 from the 45. Pigram will keep it out the right-hand side. 40, 35, 30. Tyrell Pigram is going to score. He's into the end zone for the touchdown. The Bombers looking for a running quarterback. Tyrell Pigram can run 45 yards to the end zone. Pigram was the 2015 Gatorade Player of the Year in Alabama, Loren, and made an impression on Saturday. Enough to secure a job? I think he did. I'm curious to see what Josh Jones could do in a, in a second game that would uh, that would change uh, change things. Um, another one, and and Piggy T is he's known uh, reference it in the post game show, and we talked about it during the broadcast. He was taking, I, I believe, it was a seven man blitz from the Edmonton Elks, and he immediately knew where he should go. He happened to throw it, you know, a yard behind Jeremy Murphy on the crossing route, but I left that play going, hey, he knows where to go. He'll he'll clean up the you know, getting it on target, because if he did, Murphy would have gone 15, 20, 30, 40 yards. But uh, there were there were many plays where I went, oh, yeah, okay. Pigram for his first uh, CFL experience, his first, you know, pro football preseason game experience. This looks pretty good. Uh, those runs, though, I mean, what, what Josh Jones, the other quarterback, is going to have to do to overpower, you know, those runs, uh, it, it would have to be super impressive on Friday because – that's the element that we've been talking about, you know, the Dakota Prukop element from last year, the the revolution element from years past of can you be a weapon in the run game and the sneak game? And he was in both. 
So the one area in this conversation where there might be some concern coming out of Saturday's game was the fact that the Elks ran the ball against the Blue Bomber defense so well. They rushed the ball 28 times for 160 yards or 6.4 yards per carry. And so we asked, or Derek was asked the question on a defensive line that has Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat, where else could you look for answers? Yeah, you notice Caleb Thomas, right? He uh, he blocked the game-winning field goal and he had a sack as well. And he got praise from Willie Jefferson after the game. That's a real nice pickup because uh, a lot of guys just kind of we let we finished the game and thought, did I see Dewan Cooper really apart from you know just lining up? Did I see much from Ricky Walker? Things like that. Um, Thomas made it made an impact, so that was that was good to see. And to to the point Doug Brown made on the broadcast and since then, there just need to be more bodies. There just need to be more bodies to to rotate in at defensive end and to make an impact at defensive tackle. Granted, that game, there was no Jake Thomas and there was uh, no Cameron Lawson, two guys who will be on the roster. I would presume every game they're healthy this year as Canadian defensive tackles. But yeah, there need to be more American, well, just rotational defensive end, defensive tackle body. So who's going to go? Thomas did his effort. Uh, who's going to go and, and try to claim one of those? Aaron Sterling, uh, Joe Beckett, Keenan Agnew. Who's going to who's gonna show up, uh, you know, really show up and show out on Friday? when Saskatchewan probably brings that second and third teamers in. If you want to attend the game on Friday night, we've got tickets up for grab. We're looking for your stories about interviews, Loren. And uh, Tony has one about heading up north. Was up north looking for a teaching job, got an interview in a fly-in community. There were six of us on the plane. Pilot said he was leaving at 3.30 with or without us. The first two had interviews. The third one was in there for three hours. Three of us did not get interviews as we're not going to be left behind by the plane because it was a 12-hour drive to come down for that fly-in That's interview. And, and there, if, it's, if it was a fly-in community, I don't think there's a drive, like unless it was a winter road situation. That's a long way to go to not have an interview. And uh, before we uh, close out this segment, I do want to send out condolences and thoughts to the family and friends of Cameron Caldwell, better known on these airwaves as the Kubi kid, a regular contributor as a fan on the Mike O'Shea show, on the coaches program, on all our call-in shows with regard to sports. And even if you weren't taking calls, Loren, Kubi would find a way to track you down and to let you know when you missed a stat, let you know when you'd fallen down on a conversation and taking it maybe in a direction he didn't agree, but there was nothing. And I can tell you this. Personally, the very first ever Sunday morning hockey show that we did back in 2011, Kubi called the newsroom right after and just to say how much he appreciated and loved the show and the first edition of the show. And there was no better feeling. All the bosses here could have said that coming from a loyal fan, loyal listener. Nothing meant more than his endorsement. You want the listener and this uh, or the person in your life who can give both sides you're good. You're bad. You're doing great. You're struggling. Here's the truth. Here's some facts. Because not every day is going to be perfect. So, yes, condolences to his family. I know that's a loss, obviously, for them, but for all of us here at CJOB. 37 Grey Cups attended. The Kubi Kid, uh, you'll be uh, missed and dearly remembered in these parts.
She's McNabb. I'm Mackling. McGarry returns tomorrow. There have been dozens of studies and reports written on the importance of public washrooms, not just in our part of the world, Loren, but worldwide. Yeah, there's been books. When I went kind of going down the toilet bowl hole, I couldn't believe how many studies have come out that talked about the idea that it's not just for people who need them, wouldn't necessarily even be for, you know, the more vulnerable, but for society, because the idea is it might be good for neighboring businesses. If there's a public washroom, you're not going into the business. You're not maybe doing bad things in that business. They can help with tourism. They can help people feel safe. And so tomorrow, a city hall committee is going to debate ways they can turn a successful and relatively new public washroom near Higgins and Maine into a 24-7 operation. Global News Morning reporter Clay Young joins us from 715 Maine now. And Clay, I've been watching you in and out of that facility all morning. You talk to people who say they like it. It helps them feel safe. So what's on the agenda tomorrow? Is it going to expand? Well, it, you know, it comes down to uh, the uh, big thinkers at City Hall. Um, first of all, I just want to say uh, Councillor Sherry Rollins in, in one of our live segments uh, gave us a tour of, of the facility. I must say, this is one of the most valuable facilities in Winnipeg because it does so many things, so many things to so many different people. Uh, yes, it provides washroom uh, facilities. And by the way, they are spick and span. The staff are well-trained. They clean the, the washroom. There's about six stalls. They clean it. As soon as it's used, they get in there, sanitize it, the whole shebang. Uh, and I've talked to people who use it. And, and remember, we're talking Maine and Higgins here. Uh, it's an area where there's a lot of, uh, it's dealing with a lot of issues like homelessness, uh, crime, drug addiction. And the people that I've talked to who use it say they feel safe. There's a lot of people camped out here. This is where they live just next to, to the washrooms because they know they have staff right next door that'll help them out. The staff have saved lives. If someone has a drug, a drug overdose around here, they quickly get out and administer Nioxlon, and uh, they, they, they have done a lot of other things. They, they supply needles, condoms, the whole, the whole nine yards. And the people that have, I've talked to say they want to see it open 24-7. The problem is, uh, Mama Way, which sort of oversees the operation, uh, are telling us, yeah, they want to be open 24-7, but there's an issue of lighting, especially overnight. Uh, there's also an issue of security, and that means more dollars from City Hall. So whether or not this committee will approve more and then it goes on to City Council will have to remain to be seen. So that meeting's tomorrow. Uh, I know that there's a cost to this. Before I quickly let you go, Clay, you got 20 seconds. Have they have they done the math on the cost versus not having this public washroom? I think, well, we're talking probably a few more $100,000, but I think for what it does for the community and everyone that I've talked to, I mean, Councillor Rollins is on board. Mama Way definitely wants it open 24-7. The people who live out here want it 24-7 because it does so many things. I think it's a no-brainer, but, you know, that, that's up for city council to ultimately decide. Global News Morning reporter Clay Young down at the Mama Way Public Washroom at 715 Main. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Clay.
204-780-6868 if you want to go and see the Blue Bombers and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders on Friday night. You just have to tell us your best story about a job interview gone well, gone awry, or maybe a combination of both things because on Friday evening, thousands will converge on the University of Manitoba to attend the Blue Bombers' second of two preseason games at IG Field in Loren dovetailing this into our conversation in this segment because we want to introduce our listeners to a brand new micro certificate course at the U of M. So our guest heads up the Desotel Faculty of Music's program, vocal program, which is well known for its collaborative and holistic approach to training singers. He has seen many of his students go on to significant careers as performers and teachers and also looks after the operatic ensembles at the university and helps to coordinate the faculty's contemporary opera lab. We say good morning to Professor Mel Braun. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. And I really do want to get into this micro certificate in song making. But just before we came on air, we were talking about the reputation Mm -hmm. of the music program overall at U of M. And you shared something that you thought... Well, I was like blown away only because I'm proud. So tell us a bit more about what people are now learning and knowing and understanding about the music and vocal program at the U of M. Yeah, it uh, has really grown in the last 20 years. And uh, really, uh, in terms of undergraduates, we have a lot of undergraduates, but we also have a graduate uh, program. And because of the uh, significance of our teaching faculty, we have people like Tracy Dahl on our faculty. it's one of the, uh, you know, recognized programs in the country now and probably one of the strongest undergraduate programs across the board. And people might be going to music to do all sorts of things, but yep. walk me through because I think if you're, if you're uninitiated, you think, well, what does the music bachelor music degree get you? Where, where are the step, what's it a stepping to, so stone towards for it's some? It's a stepping stone for a lot of things. Obviously, a lot of music teachers, we train a lot of music teachers in the high school and elementary system. A lot of performers, so whenever you go to a CMSIA or some classical choral concert here, those are our students that have graduated and are doing that work professionally. A lot of them get into other work, arts administration. Um, probably some of them are, you know, have gotten into the recording industry. Some are actually saying, look, I have all these skills meeting people. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. So it, it's a, the music degree is a way of preparing you for any number of, of professional careers. There, there are so many Manitobans with uh, world-leading musical credentials. Totally. Our history in music is, uh, in, in my opinion, at least per capita, second to none in our country. And it, 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 we may be the music capital uh, of the nation, and that's up for debate, I, I suppose. But I'll, I'll, I'll probably die on that hill. Nope, I agree. There's a statistic that I like, when an old dean of ours shared that Manitoba has, what, about 2% of uh, Canada's population, and we have 12% of its artists. Wow. Think about that. See? I've never heard that statistic N- before. All these reasons to be impressed this morning. So no, then it makes sense. Yep. Now, as you get back to the start of the conversation, that we would have the reputation, because the music world will understand that. So yep. if you're a person within music, you get, well, I might want to go to Winnipeg. So you have this micro-credential, mm-hmm. micro-certificate in song-making. First, just song making. Do you mean writing? Do you mean the lyrics? Do you it's, mean it's everything? A, yeah, it's a suite of courses. I mean, for years, uh, well, the last 50 years, our, our program has featured two streams, classical and uh, in the last 20 years or so, jazz. So we got those two things. But you know this community. We're a hotbed of, of pop music, rock and roll, rap, hip-hop, all of that. And so we wanted to be able to reach out to that community. And so we put together a suite of courses, which includes all of those things. So songwriting, so there'll be mentorship in songwriting, there'll be uh, mentorship in how to record, how to produce your stuff, 
and also mentorship in the business end of uh, of the music industry. The, the music industry is is obviously changed dramatically over yep. the last decade or so with technology. You know, you you, you mentioned a micro certificate. Well, all the technology is micro now sure. because you know, you can set up a recording studio just about anywhere, and people do. Yeah, and the results are spectacular. Absolutely. So has that made music more accessible to more people? And, and and are more people seeing it as a potential avenue for either a career or, or a business? No, it's, it's completely changed. And, and uh, you know how these days you can record in your closet, right? And with all the right software, you can make it sound like a million bucks. So we thought that in getting together with Manitoba Music, who are our collaborators on this, we would be able to help mentor some of these young folks because uh, they're getting it all online and just doing trial and error and pushing buttons and doing this and that. But if you can get mentorship from people that are professionals, I think it can ease your way into the profession. I was going to ask you how, how big a role does community play, you know, with regard to collaboration, we see it in business and, yep. and, and in the arts and writing, well, you see it when people want to just take a look at this. Does this, is this any good? Right. Yeah. Because for so long, I, I think we worked in all areas in silos. Yes. We were very protective yep. of, of our intellectual property. Now there's a more of a, a sense of uh, the stronger the community is, the stronger ultimately my skill, my business may become. Absolutely. Oh, and music making is about community. You can't do it. I mean, I guess you could be a cappella for a while, but no, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to go that far. So yes, collaboration and creating opportunities. And we know that there's no place in Manitoba where, or the Prairie Provinces really where you can do this kind of a program. Mm. So we thought it was about high time. And, and for myself, I have a lot of family that are in, in the pop music business, and it was just a natural thing to, to build on. What's the interest been? Huge. <laughs> we, we were approved by Senate uh, on the 17th of, uh, of May, got the word out the next week, uh, got it online, and the there have just been hundreds and hundreds of responses and uh, uh, expressions of interest. So now we're working out the registration process, which is, is coming along. And we're looking for a good, or we were hoping for an opening class of 18. <laughs> we may have more, you know. Well, that, and that's tremendous news because when you offer something new, you obviously want it to be popular. You yep. want it to be sustainable because... Uh, you know, accountability is a big thing in it education is. now, you, you know, well, we have to offer this because we want to No, there, there has to be, there's some, has to be some proof positive that, yep. that it's not only an asset to a handful of people in the community, but to the university and to the faculty itself. Absolutely. It, it lets us reach out because the way we train our, our singers and our players these days, yeah, they can do their classical stuff and their jazz stuff, but we try to give them the kind of skills that allow them to flourish in any kind of, uh, uh, environment. How does that help then with those who then might go on to become teachers? Because it's about giving, it's about keeping kids interested, right? Yes. Yeah. I will, I'm honest in saying this, my school, my kids, school teacher, their band teacher, their choir is my one, is just an exemplary person. Yep. And we were at his, the band concert last week and it's the best half hour I've had yeah. in a long yep. time because he loved what he was doing. Absolutely. And I'm not saying those kids were amazing yet, but they might get there, but they were good in that, that they were trying and he got that to that place. So the teaching has to help keep the cycle going, right? And what they yep. learn is part of that at the university. Absolutely. No, they're, they're working on all those skills that they learn. And uh, I mean, you've, we all have stories of some teacher that inspired us that got us going and got us, was interested in us, saw something in us. And I think 
we try to pass that lesson on to our students. And so they're mentoring from day one. And if your kids get excited about that stuff, wow. I was excited. I almost asked them for my own trumpet lessons. Well, and I've never see? even picked up one. But it was <laughs> it was the idea that, you know, when you talk about community, yep. everybody felt united in that gym. It was yep. hot. And you're going in there and you're like, oh, what have I signed myself up for tonight? Yep. And I not, walked away with such joy, which is what music is all about. It is. And that working together to, to get some kind of a corporate expression, I mean, that breaks down so many barriers. It really does. And that outlet of expression, I think, is so important for kids. And we got to let you run here, yeah, Mel. Yeah. We're really enjoying this conversation. That the, the, Teaching our kids, giving them the exposure to music, the opportunity. Have you got advice for parents who are maybe, they've, they've got someone in their life, maybe it's a grandchild, a child, or a sibling that, that seems to have some talent, but maybe is a little bit reluctant. Maybe they're shy to share their talent. Um, have you got some advice on how to maybe nudge them in the right direction? So often it does start in the school situation, in your choir or your band. But if, no, if you see somebody that's got uh, this kind of potential, reach out to, I mean, there's wonderful places like uh, the prep division at the University of Manitoba, which teaches a lot of kids, community music school at CMU. There's the Manitoba Conservatory downtown. There's all kinds of groups. Look in your registered music teacher's guide. There's going to be somebody there that connects with your kid. And even if you don't want to perform no, just, these days, there's so many opportunities with yep. regard to editing and yep. producing yep. And, and that sort of thing. So maybe that's the outlet. If you don't mm-hmm. want to perform, but you've got that ear, you've got that yep. talent. Go behind the that's scenes. That's the way to go? Go behind the scenes. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Terrific. Mel Braun, thank you for this. We appreciate you very much. Head of the Desotel? The voice faculty of the Desotel. Yeah. Very good. I was more worried about getting the Desotel. Correct. Well, look at uh, me. There's a whole story when, there. When Brett, too. when Brett's gone, I guess I'm the resident French person. Yeah, I don't yeah, know how you're that default, happened. You're but the default en français. Keep me out of it. <laughs> love it. Mel, come back and see us again sometime. Happy to do we'd, we'd, we'd love Thanks, to do guys. that. We have three text messages here. I think we have time to read them all. We want to send somebody to this Blue Bomber game on Friday night. Thanks to... Your conversations, your text message, your stories about job interviews. What does William have to say, Loren? Our small accounting office with five staff was interviewing for another staff accountant. It was the owner, myself, and an HR provider doing the interviews. We had two excellent candidates and were on our way to have lunch and discuss. As we were walking and talking about who would be best, the HR person stopped, looked at my boss, and said, why don't you just hire them both? He looked at me, I gave him the why not shrug, and that was it. We hired two people instead of one. 18 years later, and the office is now 25 staff strong. That's a neat response. I mean, it comes down to dollars often. You might not have the dollars for that extra position, but if you can do it, do it. Andrew says, uh, when I got my job with the government in 1996, the person interviewing me halfway through says, I remember you. You played Santa Claus at our office Christmas party, and I ended up sitting on your knee. I said to myself, don't screw this up. 27 years later, still going strong in healthcare. So when you make that connection, you know you're sort of in, right? And so now it's up to you to close the deal, so to speak. And uh, it sounds like Andrew did. Well done, Andrew. Our winner, though, is Yvonne. Yvonne said, I had applied for a job interview for a company that I was working for. It was just a different position. I booked time off a scheduled meeting that I had and went for the interview. I checked in with the receptionist, waited to be called in. Waited half an hour, nothing happened. So I thought, oh... If I go to the bathroom, I'm going to miss my turn, but I decided to chance it anyway. Went to the bathroom, and there was a person in the stall next to me. 
As the person got out, she had a piece of toilet paper stuck inside her pants that followed her all the way down the hall. I was too scared to say anything to her. I went back, sat, waited another half an hour. Still wasn't called in. I finally said to the receptionist, I better go back to work. I'm late for a meeting. As I was walking out the door, I can see that the person who was supposed to interview me was just sitting in her office talking to a friend about what she had bought shopping. Needless to say, I had to rebook an interview. I thought this was all a big joke. I didn't want the job after that. Yvonne, you covered a bunch of bases there. The washrooms that we've been talking about this morning, the jobs, the awkwardness, and also, you know what? You don't value me and my time. Mm -hmm. I clearly don't want to work for that organization. I mentioned earlier this morning, one of my boys had their very first ever job interview yesterday. And I said, remember this, you are also interviewing them. You have to, you have to, you know, you're, if you're worthy of the position that you're interviewing for, you have to make sure that they're worthy of you and that they're going to treat you properly, that they're going to respect you and that they're going to do the things that they promise. And so you have to, you have to ask them questions about what their plan is around this and that. I have no idea if he did that or not. But that's a critical part for me has always been a critical part of the process is do I fit with you and do you fit with me? And the scenario, particularly, you know, if you have a family, if you have hours you need to maintain for your your off life or off work stuff. And as a youth, as your sons, you know, they're, they're still kids. Yes, they need to be responsible and work, but they're going to want to have the odd day off. It's summertime. And how that would be my question with the, it's a hard one to ask. Yep. I would like this job. I don't mind taking how it. Long are how breaks? long are breaks? <laughs> and uh, also, what's my vacation time like? Exactly.